We're continuing in our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians called Struggling Well, the Joy of the Christian Journey. And this morning, after we've looked at uh, the first two-thirds of chapter one, we've looked at struggling well in community and struggling well in making Christ known, uh, we will now look at struggling well no matter what. Now, that's a, that's a tall order, isn't it? Struggle well in this life no matter what. Now, this is not a denial of facts. The Christian life is not to say, well, I'm just going to ignore the facts and just happy-go-lucky uh, go along with life. It is a, an acknowledgment of the challenges and the pains and the difficulties living in a sin-cursed world, but it's struggling well being able to be connected in a deep way, in a joyous way, with our Creator made known through Jesus Christ. This morning, I invite you to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. And we're looking at this theme, struggling well no matter what. Here it is in one sentence. It's a long sentence, but it, just pay attention. You'll see that it will cover all the themes of these verses here. We struggle well no matter what happens when we are convinced in mind and in heart that our mission here is to help others to progress and joy in the faith for the ultimate purpose that our lives are lived to the glory of God. We struggle well no matter what happens when we're convinced in mind and heart that our mission here is to help others to progress to progress and joy in their faith for the ultimate purpose that our lives are lived to the glory of God. With that introduction, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, and I'll actually begin with the last sentence of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that uh, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Please have a seat. Struggling well by rejoicing over Christ. 
Paul finishes verse 18 by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. He says, in that Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, It's a phrase, this sentence, yes, and I will rejoice, that's a hinge that leans us back to verses 12 through 18 and leads us toward verses 19 through 26. There are many commentators that will say, oh, that, that verse attaches to verses 12 through 18. Others will say, no, it attaches to 19 to 26. And I want to say, it's a hinge that does both, right? In tw- verses 12 through 18, it's the proclamation of Christ that's the cause for rejoicing. Christ is proclaimed. In verses 19 through 26, it is the exaltation of Christ that is the cause for rejoicing. So, the proclamation of Christ is a cause for rejoicing. The exaltation of Christ is a cause for rejoicing. And Paul begins verse 19 by saying, for I know. Isn't that a great way to start? Knowing some things. We don't have to be cast about on a sea of uncertainties of all kinds everywhere, but there are things that we can know. Even though he actually is going to cover the possibilities in the coming verses, Paul is convinced that one of two outcomes is going to happen here. Uh, There's actually three possible outcomes. He could be released and be resuming his ministry. He could remain in prison or he could go to his death, his execution. And he knows something here that... uh, He's going to experience what he calls here deliverance, verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the question is, uh, what does this deliverance mean? It's the same word that's translated salvation in the New Testament. Will he be delivered to heaven? Or will he be delivered to continued service here? He knows that he will be delivered. In other words, he knows he's not going to stay in prison. One of the two things is going to happen. He's going to go continue on with his ministry, or he's going to be delivered to heaven. Um, All of the events surrounding his imprisonment in Rome will lead to his deliverance all of them. This is quite remarkable to think about. Every event of his life that has led him to the place where he is in prison is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not a horrible, horrible shock to God. (laughs) It is rather something that is bad, that is going to work for his salvation, his deliverance. Now, What kind of deliverance is it? Well, we talked about how it could be deliverance from prison. It could be eternal salvation. But I'm going to suggest to you that Paul deliberately uses this phrase to to mean that Paul will be vindicated by both things eventually, that he'll be delivered from prison and he will be eternally saved, that he has both things in mind. In fact, Paul actually is using here this phrase, turn out for my deliverance, a phrase that is used in the book of Job, Job 13. You remember Job, right? He suffers, he doesn't know why, and he's got these wonderful friends who come along and say, well, we know why. Uh, 
you have sinned, Job. That's why. And if you just got your act together a little bit, you wouldn't be suffering like you are right now. And in fact, it's all your fault. And Job responds to these guys in Job 13. Let me back up to verse 13, where he says, let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? What he's basically saying is, hey, leave me alone. Let me not, I'm not going to try to take my own life in my own hands and try to control all events because I can't. I can't control them all. That's what Job is saying. And then he says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's struggling well no matter what. He says, I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my deliverance, my salvation. That's where Paul gets this phrase from Job 13, 16, that the godless shall not come before him. So, this deliverance is going to be a vindication that involves his deliverance from imprisonment for ministry and his eternal salvation. Now, there's two reasons given here why this deliverance is going to be the outcome. Do you see them there in verse 19? I know that. What's the means? Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. First, through your prayers, this deliverance is going to come. Now, I am not here to explain the mystery of prayer to you. God is in charge of all things. Ephesians 1.11, He works out everything after the counsel of His own will, and yet He has ordained that the prayers of the saints are effectual to the actual outcomes that happen. Our prayers matter. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, uh, <clears throat> Carol's uncle, Bob Conrad, just recently went to be with the Lord he was uh, a remarkable missionary in Papua New Guinea. At one point, I believe he held the world record for the most translations ever done by a person. He did four uh, translations of the New Testament about various peoples in Papua New Guinea. The first group that he went to, he never did finish a translation on. There's a long story to that. But it was to the May River Iwam people of Papua New Guinea. He was the first white person they'd ever seen, and they thought he was a spirit. And so what they decided that they would do is they would kill him, and if he died, he would, they would go, oh, well, he's a person. If he didn't die, then he's a spirit. So years later, they tell Bob this story that they had made the plan to do everything. They had the whole thing worked out, how they were going to kill him, where they were going to bury him, all the, I mean, they had the whole plan worked out. And they said, to this day, we do not know why we did not carry out our plan. And Bob shared that with a supporting church where he said, I know why. It is because of your prayers that turned out for my deliverance, you see. The mystery of prayer. The second means or reason why deliverance is going to be the outcome is the help or supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is, that the Holy Spirit supplies the power for deliverance. 
the word help is probably better translated supply here. That is that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is at work. When we are, when life has just gone way out of control for us, guess who is still in control? The Spirit of the living God. I am reminded of these verses from Romans chapter 8 where Paul is talking about things going haywire in our lives. He says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And here is the point that I'm getting to with all these verses. Likewise, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, Paul is steeped in this concept that being able to struggle well no matter what is done through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder then that the very next verse in that section of Romans 8 is, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Those are the means by which deliverance is the outcome here in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, now, this deliverance fits Paul's expectation, verse 20. It's his eager expectation and hope. What that means is it's an expectation that is accompanied by an emotion of assured hope. So he's got some reasons, some logical reasons for those expectations, but it's also accompanied with a heart mindset of, of an emotion of assured hope. And by the way, that is not like how we view many things in life. Either we'll have the emotion of hope without the expectation that's based on facts, it's just kind of a leap in the dark, or we'll have an expectation based on facts, but we're so pessimistic that we don't ever embrace it emotionally. Our emotions are telling us, don't get your hopes up. Here, Paul has both. He has an expectation based on facts and he has an emotion of assured hope. Both heart and mind are engaged here. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Uh, I think he's using language of the Psalms there, where 
there is a deliverance that is accompanied by exaltation or a not delivered that's accompanied by a sense of shame for the wicked. And Paul is saying here that God's going to exalt him. Now, he's doing it in a humble way because he really wants you to know that it's not all about, at all about the exaltation of Paul. Look what he does here. I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. It's about the exaltation of Christ, doesn't it? Christ will be honored. And there's four things he attaches to the honoring of Christ with full courage. That is the boldness to face life, death, opponents, whatever. Whatever happens, he's going to struggle well. Christ is going to be honored, and he's going to have full courage to face it. Now, as always, this has been Paul's life since he became a believer in Jesus, and he believes it to be the normal life for the believer, and it will always be true for him. Christ will be honored in His body. He believes that the life He's living right here and now is important, and then He adds, whether by life or death, no matter what happens. So here's some things to think about by way of application of these first two verses. What truly, what truly gets your heart rejoicing? You know, last week I dressed in this orange and blue get-up with the blue tie because I'm all excited about the fighting Illini having won a great victory. And then, of course, yesterday they lay an egg and lose to a team that hasn't won a Big Ten game all year. I cannot get up my… I, I, we cannot have our heart rejoicing over how our local sports teams do, right? Don't do that. Don't let your life be lived by that. But what else gets your heart rejoicing? Is it your money or the fact that you live in this wonderful country and it's just going to keep getting better and better for you? Is that where your hope is? Is it in your work or your family or all these other things? No. What truly gets your… For Paul, what got his heart rejoicing was that he knew Christ. So that enabled him to struggle well no matter what. You see, all events… All events lead to our deliverance if we are followers of Jesus. All events lead to our deliverance if we're followers of Jesus. Paul had a remarkable confidence in his God no matter what happened to him. Paul was completely committed to Christ and that Christ be honored by his life no matter what happened. That's what enabled him to struggle well. And he knew that he had some things in, in, in his world that enabled this. The power of the prayer of others. The power of the Holy Spirit in his life. The secret to struggling well is to not be at all ashamed and to honor Christ in our bodies with full courage. Our focus must ever be seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. Now, in the next few verses, we'll see that the biggest no matter what that we're going to face, the biggest no matter what that you and I are going to face is life or death. And it is not as big as we imagine. 
Let's think of, first of all, about life. Paul says in verse 21, to me to live is Christ. Is what you're living for worth dying for? So many people answer the question, to me to live is money, to me to live is power, to me to live is work, pleasure, to me to live is my reputation, to me to live is my family and that we are all together and we're all happy, to me to live is my hobby, to me to live is me. Now, not all of those things are sinful even, but when we make them our life, they are an idol that must be smashed. Paul says, to me, to live is Christ. He also calls life fruitful labor for him. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's thinking about being on mission, making a difference for Christ. I hope you'll come to the missions conference so that you'll have a more practical way of being able to attach to, to me to live is Christ as fruitful labor. Paul says at the end of verse 22, which, shall I, which I shall choose. Um, what he's doing is a little bit of a theoretical here. It's not in his hands. But he says, if it were in my hands, if this were put in my hands, life or death, it'd be a tough call for me. I'd honestly, he says, have a hard time answering. I'm hard-pressed between life and death. Why? Well, let's look at death for a moment. Verse 21, to die is gain. The entire goal of living is to gain Christ. This shows how thoroughly Paul believes what he has been preaching. Verse 23, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ. To be with Christ. This, by the way, is the very definition of heaven. You know, there's a lot of chatter going on these days about Well, you know, you don't really go to heaven. There's a new creation here on earth that you're going to go to, blah, blah, blah. Now, understand the definition of heaven is where Jesus is, okay? And where did he go? He ascended, it says, into heaven. And when we die, we depart and be with Christ. The immediate conscious experience for believers after they die is to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Now, there's some nuance, right? There's going to come a time when Christ is going to come back and He's going to bring heaven down to earth and there'll be a new creation forever here on this earth where there'll be a new city, the new Jerusalem with the streets of gold and all of that, and that's going to be our conscious experience also. But Paul's focusing right now on the idea, if I die, I go and be with Christ. It's better by far. There were three people who were living in Rome at this time. I don't know that they met, but it would make a remarkable play for someone to write Uh, of a conversation among these three people who were living at Rome at the time Paul wrote this letter. One of them, of course, is the Apostle Paul. 
The other is the famous Roman philosopher Seneca, who had a tremendous influence in Stoic philosophy. And the other, of course, was the emperor at the time, Nero. Imagine those three guys in the room and asking them the question, what is life and what is death? If you ask Seneca, what is life? He would say, it's the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of, of overcoming destructive emotions, becoming a clear and unbiased thinker, allowing one to understand universal reason. If you asked Nero, what is life? He would say, life is power, the exertion of power over my entire realm as far as it extends, and I'd like to extend it even further. Paul, what is life? To me, to live is Christ. Seneca, what is death? Death is the end of life. It's the end of thought. It's the end of it all. Nero, what is death? Death is the end of power, the end of my influence, the end of my being able to assert control over the entire world. Paul, what is death? Death is gain. Let's think about some applications. The first is really a prayer. Uh, there's a book written by a friend of mine, Rusty Freeman. It's a book that I give to new cancer patients. I had the privilege of giving it to Carol this past week. Um, and in this book, uh, by the way, Rusty had brain cancer and beat it twice. He ended up dying, actually, of uh, heart disease that was uh, uh, affected by the medications that he'd taken. But in this, in this book, he has several prayers, and here's one of these prayers. Giver of life, our time here is not one happy straight road, but a ride down an untamed river. Thank you that you take the trip with us. We are safe with an all-knowing, all-caring guide. Amen. Isn't that good? I don't know when life's going to get up and look at you, but sometime it will. And at that moment, you're going to have to ask, how do I struggle well no matter what? No matter this? And Paul says, yes, no matter this. It's an untamed river we're on here in this sin-cursed world. Can you say, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? What is life to you? More like Seneca, Nero, or Paul, what is death to you? More like Seneca, Nero, or Paul? Well, let's look now at the next section, the last one. Great power for living comes when we help others to progress and joy in the faith. Verse 24, the art of struggling well comes from serving others particularly in disciple-making, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul shares now that he's convinced that of these two certainties, life or death, that life is the one that's more necessary for the Philippians. He's convinced that he's going to live because it means that he will be able to continue with them 
in the disciple-making process, that it's more necessary on their account. It's more necessary for them. And so, he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. But notice that the goal here, in end of verse 25, it isn't so that I can enjoy life. <laughs> no, the joy that comes from Paul is the progress and joy that happens in others' lives. That's what he lives for. The progress of the church, of the, in the faith of the church at Philippi. The joy in the faith of the church at Philippi. Those are two very interesting phrases, aren't they? Where he says, I will continue with you all for your progress in the faith and your joy in the faith. It's easy to lose sight of one or the other of those. Even in ministry, right, you, you look at people and you're thinking, man, I want to urge them and challenge them and encourage them and just kind of get going. Let's go for Christ. You know, and urging for the progress of the faith and you've ignored the joy. You lose sight of the joy that's there. On the other hand, you can focus so much on, hey, I'm in right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time, you know, and you're not thinking about challenging one another to growing in Christ, Right? We need both of those things. I'm convinced, Paul says, that I, it's more necessary for me to be here for your progress and joy in the faith. But verse 26, even progress and joy in the faith are only intermediary goals. Don't misunderstand. Progress and joy in the faith are crucial. They're critical. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is found here in verse 26, that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. That Paul's life is a means for others to glory in Christ Jesus. One way to translate that is boast, but it doesn't mean that we're boasting in any sense of pride. It's the idea of all the glory all the weight, all the honor goes to Christ. Paul says, I'm going to live so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ. You might see Him and know Him and love Him and serve Him. Our lives are a means for others to become better worshipers. And here, it is how worship will abound when Paul and the Philippian church are reunited. When Paul is released from prison and he gets back to Philippi, he's saying, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my return to you, my coming to you again. Here's some ways we can think about this in application. Progress and joy in the faith. Dear brothers and sisters, this is why I want to be your pastor, to help you progress in your faith, to challenge you and encourage you more and more to become like Christ. But not just that, to also experience joy in the faith, that it's a joyous journey. Oh, there's, there's some challenges, there's some hard things that happen, but we're together 
going to struggle well no matter what happens because we know Jesus. May I suggest that that is why your pastors and elders want to shepherd. They want to shepherd you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is why teachers in our uh, Sunday school, in our ABFs and children's Bible fellowships, it's why they teach. It's why youth ministry people do youth ministry for their progress and joy in the faith. It's why volunteers volunteer. It's why believers marry believers for progress and joy in the faith. It is what Christian parents have as their goal for their children, progress and joy in the faith. Don't just have one. Have both of them. Now, I want you to know that your troubles themselves are working deliverance for you. This is a mystery, but it's all over the New Testament. They, that the New Testament does not say that our troubles are good. It says that our troubles are bad, and yet the bad thing works out to be good. Isn't that amazing? In one sense, as believers in Christ, guess what? We can't lose. <laughs> there's, there's no losing. We win in Jesus Christ no matter what. So let me take you on a journey through several texts of the Bible here on this. First one, Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see the same theme there that we're seeing in Philippians 1? Or how about 2 Corinthians chapter 4? For this light, momentary affliction, that's how he regards every affliction in life, light and momentary. <laughs> is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you rejoice in Him with a joy, you be, or excuse me, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation, the deliverance of your souls. There is one commentator in the book of, in the letter of Philippians that uh, had a phrase that I want to use. It's uh, Gordon Fee. He, he says, he calls this a firm grip on future certainties. Isn't that a good phrase? A firm grip on future certainties. Have you as a believer somehow gotten so into what's going on in your world right now that you have failed to look up 
and you've lost your firm grip on future certainties. It is only through a firm grip on future certainties that one can struggle well in this life, no matter what. The big goal is to glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray, and when I'm done praying, I'd like us to stand and repeat the answer to the question of the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, teach us what it means to struggle well no matter what, to have in our hearts a a firm reliance on Jesus Christ, and to seek that in our lives we would honor Him in every way. We would pray, Lord, that we would be convinced both in our mind and in our hearts that our mission here is to help others to progress and joy in the faith for the ultimate purpose that our lives are lived for the glory of God. Now, Lord, I pray for those who may be in the sound of my voice who have never put their faith in Jesus. I would pray, Father, that you would enable them to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that they would trust what He did at the cross to forgive them, that they would believe that He was raised bodily from the dead And so all of these realities are true. Lord, we pray that as we meet up with various struggles, that you would help us to struggle well, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and answer this question together. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Let's sing.